This is the Prairie Prophets Podcast with host Brandon Butler. Fresh off an adventure to Greenland, we're joined today on Prairie Prophets by the star of episode six, Mr. Steve Mowry. Welcome to the show, Steve. Well, thank you, Brandon. I'm glad you made it back from uh, the land of the frozen tundra. Glad to be back, but when it when I was there, it was about 55 degrees every day. When I came home, I had two days of decent weather, then it went to 105. I'd be dishonest if I wasn't saying I was kind of looking over my shoulder, wishing I was back there for a while. Now, it wasn't too long ago that uh, former President Donald Trump had mentioned buying Greenland. You think that would be a good investment for America? <laughs> oh, it would be a wonderful acquisition for the country. I don't know. I don't know about for the folks of Greenland because they really like what they have there. And I thought a lot about that when I was there. The town of Kangerlussak is the town that we flew in, or I flew into. I made this trip, a solo trip. And you have to get there by way of Copenhagen because there are no direct flights in the United States into Greenland. And so when I got off the plane in Kangerlussak, I got on a boat. Oh, the beach was about a mile away. And within... A half mile, I started seeing caribou and muskox. And I got to thinking about that. What if we had a direct line from New York and Atlanta and Houston to Greenland? What, what would that wildlife look like in 10 years? I mean, would, they be able to, would they be able to manage the pressure that a steady stream of American hunters would put on it? I, just, I don't know what the status of their game management is. But I know right now, because of the circuitous way that you have to go to, to get there, There aren't that many Americans going to Greenland to hunt muskox. Well, international travel will certainly educate one about the value we have here in the North American model of wildlife conservation. I was just in South Africa myself, and even though I had a wonderful time over there, I came to appreciate our North American model even more. Now, that's something you participate in regularly. For folks that haven't seen episode six, where we tour your farm and go turkey hunting. I, I highly recommend them going back and watching that episode of the show. It's available on prairieprofits.com or on YouTube. And learning more about how one who loves wildlife comes to devote themselves to habitat improvement, of which you are a shining example. How did your love of wildlife transition to such a dedication to habitat improvement? So we were pleased and fortunate to be able to start buying land in North Missouri in the late 80s. I had some partners because, gosh, I was young and I didn't have any money. But about the time I got into my late 20s, the land or the farm crisis was going on. And so land prices were really low by even those standards. But we, we had put a little group together. And so we bought a farm in Putnam County and after owning that for a few years, we thought, well, maybe, you know, a couple of us thought maybe we could look for another farm. And we found this farm near Novinger, which is about 10 miles west of Kirksville. And hold your, hold your shoes on, because in those days, land prices for good timber, good hunting ground, was around $230 an acre. Man. And what had happened is that, you know, the, the, the farm economy had really collapsed in some ways. And what you, it was disturbing. You'd see young guys in their late teens, early twenties, just driving aimlessly around on the 
gravel roads with a six pack of beer beside him and a shotgun next to him. And that's because they just didn't have anything to do. You know, the realities of modern farming are bigger equipment, fewer people. At least in North Missouri, there was a, a period of time where these guys just didn't have anything, anything to do or any place to go because their folks had lost their own farm. And they were just still kind of refugees in their own, in their own county. And unfortunately, a lot of that went to negative things. I mean, a lot of them became drug addicted. And I saw over the years the number of those young guys just disappearing. They just dropped. They had no economic reason to remain in North Missouri, so much of it. A lot of what my motivation is uh, in, in helping or wanting to help what everybody on the Raceline Alternative Energy team do is bring a sense of economic vitality back to the rural areas of, of North Missouri and other places. And at the same time, try to bring in a, oh, a conservation ethic where we protect the land. But to, to circle back to the, to the story, we, we were able to buy, these farm, or buy this farm. And over time, my wife and I ended up owning it ourselves. And over time, we were able to add more land to it, to the edges of it. And I watched the turkey population really closely. The reason I started hunting up in Putnam County originally was I kept hearing about how the turkey population was doing up there. My original hunts had been down around Humansville in the Ozarks. We, I'm from Nevada, Missouri, and we just didn't have a population of turkeys there on the west side of the state in the 70s or even all through the most of the 80s. You had to drive about 60 miles to the east to find a, a huntable population of turkeys. I was hearing about the turkeys in North Missouri, and I got an invite to come up and hunt a farm. And I think the first morning I went out, I heard 16 different gobblers in a circle around me. And when one would start, they would all go in a circle, and I thought I had reached the promised land. And for you know several years after that, and this would have been 1987 or 80, no, no, I'm sorry, 1985, when I first started going up there, for maybe 10 years after that, I saw that turkey population at, at its peak. Sometimes uh, you could find a flock of turkeys in a grain field in the winter that might number a thousand birds. You'd see bald eagles perched in the trees around them because there were so many birds. It was interesting watching the turkeys develop strategies to deal with bald eagles. Uh, it, was, it was just a remarkable thing. And then, then I started noticing on our property and others that the Turkey numbers just didn't, they just weren't the same. They were not in the big groups. And you didn't hear 15 gobblers at one time within 200 yards of you. And I started looking at our farm, thinking, what is it I can do to help birds? Uh, and so I was directed uh, toward uh, Frank Overly in uh, Adair County and went out to meet with him. And I said, Frank, my analysis is that I don't have enough bedding, good nesting cover for turkeys. What should I do? And so patiently he took me into the world of prairie, out of which I've never emerged. It was through that experience of trying to bring grasslands back onto our farm that uh, I've learned about all the different things over the years that, that need to be done to Missouri grounds to make it uh, the best it can be for all kinds of animals. The, the grasslands story is pretty well known. I mean, we're down to one-tenth of a percent, I think, of our native prairies. So much of our 
former grasslands are now taken up in corn and especially soybean production. That our grassland birds are in just a great decline. But you know, interestingly enough, our our forests are also threatened. And it's not by forests being cutting cut down, it's by the lack of disturbance. John Murphy, who we both have a long history with, was an original private lands fellow with the conservation department that took me on a tour of my own farm one time and showed me how the closed canopy forest was allowing almost no food to, to grow for the deer and turkey that were in my woods. And I, w- I had been there for years. I looked it over, but I looked, but I did not see because I didn't understand. And I just learned over the years then that forests have to have disturbance if you want to maximize the potential for wildlife. The statistic given to me is that a lot of very dark closed canopy forests may produce about 50 pounds per acre of forage. A forest that has had heavy timber stand improvement that really reduces the basal area could have as much as 2,000 pounds of forage. And so for a hunter like me who wanted to have a lot of timber, I just wanted to make it as productive as possible. So that's where we are today. Well, what was step one? When you come to acquire land like this, it's almost like you're staring at the elephant and you got to start with taking that first bite. What was the first bite? Well, the first bite was to become educated. Now, when I started, I didn't have the advantage that everybody does now. If you if you go now to a podcast provider, there are many, many really good podcasts out there about habitat management. And it's for, it's free for the taking. You can sit and listen for years now at late at night or as you wake up in the morning as you're driving into work and really learn what the, the research tells you and what is out there about what needs to be done. I didn't have that, but I did have the advantage of relationships. And so I had Frank Overly to, to rely on. I had some really good help from the Missouri Department of Conservation. We have the private lands uh, people. You know, most states don't have the ability to have a private lands person in every county like we do, or maybe they, some of them might share a county. But at the time, I contacted the private lands fellow, and he came out and said, well, the first thing you need to do is start doing some TSI work because your, your forest is too thick. And so I would say the first thing to do is reach out to your private lands people and then see what programs are available through the NRCS or the Conservation Department to meet the goals of what the private lands folks think. I mean, it may require that you have a forest management plan done by a forester. Uh, That tells you the prescription that you need to have. You don't have to walk through the woods and dream it up yourself. There are actually professionals that will come in and say, a forest stand improvement or or timber stand improvement. I think those words are used interchangeably. Maybe one may be more related to timber improvement, the other more for wildlife. But to get their assistance and you'll get a plan in your hand. And the truth is there there is cost share available through equip. And if you've done some other good work on your property, you can compete and maybe get into a, a conservation stewardship project that will help with the costs of doing all this because it's it's not cheap to come in and remove half the timber in your forest. A really good forest manager can come in and, and use a judicious sale of lumber or timber to help with the timber stand improvement. The enemy of the forest is not the woodcutter. The enemy is indifference. 
Well, Aldo yeah. Leopold said the axe is one of the main components of conservation. Absolutely. And so the first thing you'll see uh, when you thin your forest is that in the next growing season, you have a lot more vegetation that gets up around waist high. And you, you will automatically see a lot more wildlife. They might be a little better hidden, but there's a, just a lot more of them. They'll come from everywhere to take advantage of the, of the food. You don't, we don't think in the Midwest that there's food pressures on deer because we have so much agriculture in North Missouri. But my experience was whenever we'd have workers come in to cut trees down for timber stand improvement, that night in the winter, the deer would be in there eating the buds off, the, off those trees. I think it's interesting that many people who do not hunt have a hard time understanding how a hunter can love wildlife so much and then pursue it in a hunting fashion. I think most of us, we come to wildlife as hunters and then we take it upon ourselves to drastically improve life for those animals that we hunt. Can you try to explain that in your own terms as to how a hunter can love wildlife so much but still hunt them? The the hunting is really... uh the vehicle that gets you to the, the relationship with wildlife. I mean, there are other ways to come and appreciate wildlife other than hunting. I, I think of birders. Birders go out and appreciate wildlife. Sometimes they're, they're more list makers. They, you know, they stick around long enough to see it or hear it, then check it off their list and move on. But I think birders really have a, a greater understanding of birds than hunters do. So you don't have to just be a, a hunter to really appreciate wildlife, but for for me, it I grew up in a time when the harvesting of a deer was a big deal. It was a big deal for your family because that might have been a hundred pounds of meat that went into the freezer for that for that year. And for a young a young guy that was able to help feed his family, that's a very affirming thing. Uh, it makes you feel like you've done something for your family. When how many times can kids feel like they're actually doing something for the entire family? That's so. I think there's for generations that's been a connection from between wildlife and and young young people is uh, helping their family. And so over time, the but the food has always been an important part of it for me. We had deer loin last night at our house, and I don't know of a better meal out there now. I've been all over the world, and I don't know that I've ever had anything better than deer loin done the right way. One of the reasons Uh, I love uh, here in Missouri, it's called Share the Harvest, but in other states there's different names for venison donation programs. But one of the reasons I love that so much is because it returns the hunter to a provider for their community. And that was a role just a few generations ago. As our country was being expanded into the West, there were people whose job it was to procure meat for the community. Now, you don't want me building your house or growing your garden, but that's a role that I could have embraced 150 years ago, and it's a role that I get to play a part in now. So you're exactly right when you talk about the food being such a critical component of it and providing for your family, but there's also ways that you're providing for your greater community as well. Not only in today's terms of hunting and donating to a, a venison collection program, but just in providing that habitat on your land which takes us back to that North American model of wildlife conservation because the deer that are on your land 
benefiting from the money that you've spent, the time that you've invested, they're no more your deer than they are your neighbors or the guy down the road five miles. You know, wildlife belongs to all of us collectively. So when someone like yourself steps up and provides that habitat for quail and turkeys and deer and squirrels and rabbits and whatever else, you're providing for your community. How does that make you feel? Brandon, I, I was very moved by a podcast that you did with Bruce Sassman and Jan Sassman here recently. And Bruce ended that podcast reciting, I think from memory. He did, from memory. A, 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 he, he from did. memory, a long passage, word for word, from Aldo Leopold, talking about the dying of the wolf and the mountain. And the, the gist of it really, to me, was, you know, the, the mountain can actually be brought down by too many deer. The wolf before, you know, Europeans showed up existed as a way to keep deer numbers down and and protect the vegetation. Well, if if we aren't there to do the work of the wolf, then the mountain is going to come down. We're going to, you know, our, you'll see tracks of ground already in, you know, in Missouri where you can see there's overgrazing, overbrowsing. And that's not a healthy situation for animals. So if we're going to be the stewards of the land, and I take that seriously, I mean, it's biblical for me. I believe that if God has given me the ability to own property, then it's my responsibility to be the best steward of it that my wife and I could be. And that involves spending as much of our money that we can legitimately afford taking care of it, making sure that it's better than it was when we're gone than when we found it. Our friend Doug Duran up in Wisconsin has one of the greatest lines about that. It's not ours. It's just our turn. And I think that just defines it so well. Well, like you said, I I hope I can hunt turkeys till the end of my time. But now, at the 64th year of my life, it's more important that I have turkeys than than that I kill a turkey. The joy that I saw in my seven-year-old, seven-year-old grandson's eyes this year when he shot his first turkey is beyond almost anything I ever experienced when hunting. And that was an amazing time for me to see that happen and to make sure that that happens for my grandkids and your grandkids and everybody else's grandkids is really important to me. And if we drop this ball, it's our fault. You know, we can't We can't let that happen. And so... The hunting connection gives you that reason to pick up that axe or to hire that contractor, spend the money that you could have spent going on a trip somewhere. Well, before we run out of time, I want to talk to you just briefly about your relationship with Rudy Raceline. You're one of the inner circle members who have been around Raceline Alternative Energy since its inception. Can you talk about that journey from your perspective and when Rudy came up with this idea compared to where we are today? Well, I can. It's, it's one of the great joys of my life to, to talk about. And I, and I talk about it with pride as though it's an accomplishment of mine. <laughs> because there have been some things in my life that I'm really proud about. The relationship I have with Morningstar Missionary Baptist Church and the Urban Core of Kansas City. The great family that I've, that I've been able to have over the years I've been blessed with. But the conservation work that I've been blessed to do. So it really started with Frank Oberly. He, he convinced Dr. Morton, Dr. Wayne Morton, that I might be somebody that was useful 
on the Prairie Foundation. And so I served on the Prairie Foundation board, Missouri Prairie Foundation for a couple of years. And they asked me to get in a leadership role. And once I became president, I became concerned when I one day sitting on my porch because there was a, a westerly or wind coming out of the west and I could smell hog manure and it was strong and it was awful. And I learned that that smell came from about 14 miles away. I just couldn't imagine what in the world, how, how it could be that bad. And, and also emanating from an area that was called, that was a prairie chicken focus area. In those days, in the areas around Sullivan, Adair County, we still had a remnant flock of prairie chickens. And so I took upon myself to think, what can we do to, to expand the prairie chicken possibilities here in North Missouri? And so at that time, Premium Standard Farms was the name of the hog operation. And they had what I thought was about 50,000 acres in North Missouri. And I just wondered if there might be some way to work with them to see if some of that land that had hog manure spread on it could go into a prairie that might have ecological benefits that prairies obviously do, but might also benefit them in terms of public relations. Because at that time, they were under huge assault, maybe rightfully, the, the, from the, the odors that came off the hog operation, the leaks that they had out of their system, the spills. They, I think they were really struggling financially. I, I wasn't aware that they were struggling as much, but I just knew that from other lawyers that uh, I worked with, that they were getting hit on a regular basis for the smells. And I knew that it could not be good for them in the long term. So a friend of mine, Steve Fuller, lawyer in Kansas City, uh, was one of those guys that likes to put people together. And he put me together with a, a young fellow by the name of David Townsend, who was an employee with Premium Standard Farms at the time. And uh, there's another fellow that had lunch with us that ended up being with, working with Kansas City. But I proposed to them at a lunch in downtown Kansas City that they give us some ground, not charge us any money for it, just let us have it for a certain number of years and turn it into a prairie and, and just see what positive benefits could come out of that. And shortly after that, 10 days after that, I get a letter offering us about 600 acres for 10 years for no rent. Now, what had happened is that Premium Standard had a crystallization process on the what they call the Valley View Farm that was operating. And at that moment, they believed that that was going to be very successful and they would not be spreading as much hog manure on the ground as they would in the future. As it worked out, that didn't, that process was faulty and wasn't successful. But in the interim, they gave us 600 acres for no rent. And as soon as that happened, I called my friend, Frank Oberly. And in fact, I, I, I talked to him several times about this. I said, Frank, we've got 600 acres. What are we going to do now? Are we going to get this brewery built? And so we put together a little working group with uh, John Murphy, who, again, we talked about earlier, was the private land specialist with the Conservation Department in Adair County. Chris Woodson, who was with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in a different capacity than he is today. But we put together a project and got a big grant. Uh, it was, at the time, the largest, uh, I think, WIP grant that had been granted in the state of Missouri. And we planted a prairie on there over the next few years that is remarkable today, uh, par partly because it had so much hog manure on it, but partly because it was done so well and done with such great care between Frank and and uh, and Chris and, and John. And I would report to the board at the Prairie Foundation at our quarterly meeting about the progress of that prairie. And I had appointed Rudy to the board. Somehow I, I tricked him and convinced him and was able to get him on the board 
because board, board membership comes with a lot of downtime and a lot of things that you, you think, man, can, can he be using his time better? But he very graciously served on that board and would come all across the state to these meetings. And he would hear my reports about this farm and how we were working with Premium Standard Farms. And he asked uh, me and Frank if we might be able to get him a meeting with the folks at Premium Standard Farms. And I said, I'm 100% convinced that we can. And within a few short weeks, that meeting took place. And I'd like to say it was an overnight success, but I think it was about 12 years later that they celebrated the 10th anniversary of their contract, the relationship. The rest is kind of history about how that re-innervated the hog production capacity in, within that company that later became Smithfield Foods. And so that was the start of it. And uh, that relationship continues on today. Well, Steve, you were there for the beginning, and I'm glad to see you still playing such a big role today. Thank you for the example you set as a dedicated conservationist. You've inspired me and many other people around you. And I look forward to many more years of learning how to be a better land steward by watching you on your farm. Well, thank you, Brandon. I, I, when I was president of the Prairie Foundation, I urged folks almost every quarter to go out and buy land if you cared about land, if you cared about wild places and wild things, because I knew that our readers would be good stewards. And I think it's still good advice today. If you care about wild places and wild things, be a purchaser of land. It, you'll, you'll make money at the end of the time. It will give you many positive benefits throughout your life. It will benefit the wildlife that we all care so much about. If you want to learn more about Steve Mowry and see a great video on his farm, check out Prairie Profits, Episode 6. Thanks for listening to the Prairie Profits Podcast with host Brandon Butler. 